Turn with me in your Bibles, if you will, or your mobile device to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. I am... Luke chapter 10. We've been talking about a series... uh, We're in in the middle of a series on race in the church. Talking about the situation in the American church as it deals with race, and quite honestly, how the American church doesn't really deal with race, and yet we should be dealing with it. Uh, And I want to just give everybody an update that tuned in to 1030. Erin is doing much better. She actually actually drove the boys over and dropped them off for the second service, and uh, she was worn out by making that mile drive. So um, you just continue to pray for her. And uh, it is good to have her home, and she gets better, it seems, every day. Thank you so much for your prayers and your concern and your compassion. Uh, it was it very, uh, very much appreciated. Uh, we started, I preached a message last week that is a, this is a follow-up message to that. And today's message is called A Biblical Example of Sinful Complicity. In the, in the series the text for this whole series on race in the church, it's found in Amos chapter 5 and verse 24 where Amos writes, but let justice flow like water and righteousness like an unfailing stream. And what God is saying to us in that verse is that that's what our lives should be as followers of Christ. Our lives should be filled with justice. Justice towards others um, should be unfailing in our lives. The way we see each other, seeing each other as equal, seeing each other as people for whom, people who God created and for whom Jesus Christ died is the view that we should have as followers of Christ, as children of God towards others, even and especially for those of a different race. I found a quote by Martin Luther King Jr. that seems to, seems to bring into light the attitude that many people have towards race and the church today, sadly. As I've spent the last... Uh, Uh, Man, last several weeks, even while Aaron was in the hospital, I would sit down and I would do research and listen to to conversations and listen to sermons and uh, read as much as I could on this topic because I want to be well-informed and I want to learn. One of the things we're going to talk about is that you you have to admit that you don't know what you don't know. And uh, as a man, that's very difficult because men know everything, uh, sports and directions. So... I think that's I think that's how um, explorers found their way around the world. They got lost and they didn't want to stop and ask directions. Okay, that works better with a bigger audience, right? <laughs> but in light of what is going on in America, and we're not talking politics here, we're talking about the church. And in light of what's going on with race and the church, we have to be honest, it it takes some thinking. It takes some hard delving into the issue and some examination. And Martin Luther King Jr. said this, he says, rarely do we find men who willingly engage in hard, solid thinking. There is an almost universal quest for easy answers and half-baked solutions. Nothing pains some people more than having to think. I think that's very true, and I think it's very true when it comes to issues that we don't like, issues that offend us, issues that that step on our toes and make us feel like we're being attacked. 
And I'll just be honest, because I've been very honest through this series. Um, I'm a white man. I'm not sure if that shows up on Facebook Live very well. Um, I have a nice tan, but I am white. <laughs> and uh, that, again, was an attempt at humor. So we'll just kind of dispense with that stuff. Um, and speaking as a white man from a white man's perspective, I see that many of many individuals from my own race don't want to do the hard work in thinking that needs to be done to get to the heart of this issue of race, especially race and the church. Let's just be real honest. There's a reason why there are black churches, and there is a reason why there are white churches, and there are a reason why there are Latino churches, even if they all speak English. It's because that's the way many people prefer it, and that's the way it has always been, and what we're delving into is the question, is that right? The, the premise of these messages is not political. This is not about social justice for social justice sake. It's not about income equality or, social, or, or school choice. This is not a political message. This is not a political series. We just don't do that. I don't do that here. The premise of this message is that a divided church means a divided message, a divided purpose, and a divided eternity. When we are separated by black and white, our message is not love. Our message is divided from the message of grace. When we're separated by black and white, our purpose is not to build the church that Jesus said that he would build in Matthew 16, 18. Our purpose is divided from the express purpose that Jesus gave to his followers. And when we're divided by black and white, people don't see the light of the world. They don't see the salt of the earth. They see hypocrisy and reject the message of salvation. And they die and they go to hell and we are divided from them for eternity. Racism is of Satan. Racism and the division in the church that results from it is sin. The premise of this message is that of unity, the need to honestly address sin, wickedness, and evil that's been committed in the name of the faith that we claim and do our best to learn a lesson and move forward toward the unity of all followers of Jesus, no matter their skin color. Now, last week, uh, there's a couple things I want to review very quickly about last week as we move forward. And there's three important truths, I believe, that we must accept about ourselves and about the attitude, the general attitude in churches and the church, if you will, as we operate. Um, and then, then as we admit those things, and I'm not, please understand, I'm not coming from a point of arrogance here, but I think it's important that we be honest. And like Martin Luther King Jr. said, we've got to think hard about these things. It's easy to dismiss what we don't like. It's difficult to accept and admit something if it's a fault that we not necessarily hold, but we excuse. And I think before we can learn anything from this conversation about race and the church, there's some admissions that we have to make and operate from. The first one is this. You must admit that you do not know what you do not know about race, race relations, race relations in the church, and what the Bible teaches about your attitude towards other races as a follower of Jesus. If you come at a topic like this, it, it's kind of like it's kind of like football or sports. If you come at it with the attitude, I'm a Dodgers fan. If I come at this season or every major league season and just say the Dodgers are the best, they've got the best players, they've got the best this, the best that, and nobody else matters, then I am not willing to look at 
in an analytical way and induce hard thinking to see what, true, what is the truth about baseball. What is the truth about the major leagues? Who really is the best team out there? And I know that's kind of a, uh, a light way of, of, of making the point, but unless I'm willing to admit that I don't know what I don't know about a topic, I will never learn about that topic. So when it comes to race, race relations, and especially what we're talking about for these, the purposes of this sermon and this series, race relations in the church, it is vital that we understand and accept the premise that we don't know what we don't know. That means that as a white man, I cannot speak intelligently on the feelings of a man of color about race relations and division in the church. I must admit that I don't know what I don't know and commit to learning about that, especially if I want to be a godly man and a follower of Jesus that makes a difference. The second thing is this, you must accept that people of other races and your own race have different experiences and perspectives than you do when it comes to treatment from attitudes towards racial issues. I didn't use this in the first service, but I'm going to use it now. As I said, I'm white. The two, two youngest boys that my wife and I adopted, Gabriel and Michael, are Puerto Rican. And in our neighborhood, a couple months ago, Michael was called an, an effing N-word. And it, a big thing boiled over. We are, we are persona non grata in most yards. And the, the, the kid's mother said her, my boys were not allowed to swim in their pool. Be, you know, long story short. My wife, before all this blew up, my wife was talking to one of our neighbors, and she told him this. And you know what his response was? This white man, he said, well, Boys will be boys. Okay, all right. Well, I'll tell you what, brother. <laughs> Your experience in racial issues is much different than mine. And as a father who is raising two boys of color, and as I've said before, if you want to, if you want to insult my boys racially, don't call them the N-word because there's a whole different slur for Puerto Ricans. So be an educated racist if you're going to be one. Uh, that wasn't humorous. That was true. Um, I have a different experience than you do. Even though I'm white, my experience with race and racial division is different than yours. So if you really want to understand, then you're going to have to listen to my perspective, and I'm going to have to listen to yours. Before you're going to learn, before we're going to solve this problem, we all have to admit that we don't know what we don't know and that others have different experiences than us when it comes to racial matters, even people from our own race. And as a follower of Christ, number three, I believe, is the most important. You must commit to applying the principles of the Bible to your view of people of a different race than you. This shouldn't be that hard. This shouldn't be that difficult. I've, I have listened to and, and watched uh, roundtables where uh, pastors and, and leaders have talked about building a new system and, and building new tables. And it's like, guys, this is not that difficult. It's really not. You've got to commit to doing what the Bible has to say. And then just doing it. It's pretty simple. You don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. You just have to do the right thing. <clears throat> now, there's a couple definitions I gave last week in last week's sermon that uh, 
that we're using in this series of messages to help us understand the landscape of the universal church or the universal body of Christ, as you will, if you will, today, as well as the landscape of our society. Because the church, especially when it comes to race, the church many times is a microcosm of society. We are a, a smaller group of, of truth of what is going on out there. Although we are a place of faith and we operate from the Bible, usually what the, the social and societal makeup of a church it kind of mirrors its, its community. So these two, two definitions, the first one is this, guilt. Guilt. Guilt is simply this actually being a racist. As we're talking about race relations, guilt is simply actually being a racist. Using language, calling people names, uh, supporting people and causes and societal norms and functions that are without question weighted to the side of the white population and the oppression of people of color. Now, I know I've met a couple races, but most people don't fall into this category. But it's important that we define that because it's important that we understand what true racism is and what true racism is in the church. Zach can remember, or for those of you who aren't new lifers that are watching online, Zach is our assistant pastor. He's also my oldest son. Zach can remember a, uh, a time in a church where uh, a, a deacon of the church gave up and got up and gave a testimony about uh, a group of, uh, they, they went on a, they went on a missions trip to Mexico, and in this part of the country, there were a lot of Mexican immigrants. And he actually said from giving a testimony about his, his uh, missions trip, he said, my attitude towards Mexicans changed because I saw them working and I thought they were all lazy. No lie. I'm like, wow. Wow, man. That's, that, I was kind of, my mouth kind of dropped open when I heard that from a deacon of the church at that time. <laughs> That's guilt. Actually, be, actually having an attitude and categorizing and classifying someone because of their race. When a person of color is perceived as a threat because they're a person of color, that is guilt. I wrote it wrong. It's not Jonathan's fault, it's mine. That should say guilt, not complicity, my fault. When a person of color is perceived, it's up there, not back there. I do have a screen back there though. When a person of color is perceived as a threat because they are a person of color, just because they're a person of color. Two teenage boys walking down the street, two African-American boys, or two in our area, two Puerto Rican boys, God forbid they're wearing a hoodie. If you perceive them as a threat simply because of the color of their skin, then that's racism, okay? <laughs> when people of color are not welcome in a town, neighborhood, or a church because of the color of their skin or the excuse they'd be more comfortable with their own kind, that is guilt, and that is racism. The second thing, definition, is the definition complicity. And this is what we're going to deal with a lot today. This is what our sermon is going to be about today, a biblical example of racial complicity. Complicity is simply this, association or participation in or as if in a wrongful act. The failure to act or speak against wrongful actions by or towards others. 
turning a blind eye to injustice or wrongdoing, not acting when you have the ability and capacity to do so. Now, let's bring this down. Let's make this personal. Bring it down to my, my situation. I like to use myself as an example, not because I'm a narcissist, but because I don't want to get letters from other people and I don't want people to be offended and say that I was picked on them. So I use myself in my life. I'm very comfortable doing that. What would you think of me as a father if when that young man, those two little boys, those two boys, called my sons those horrible names and blamed my sons for calling themselves, this is crazy, Taylor, they were blamed for, say, for calling themselves that. Like, no, no, guys, no. We're, they're, they're not African-American, okay? They wouldn't be doing that, and they're not, you know, don't be stupid is what I wanted to say. But, but what would you think of me as a father if when my boys came back and told me that heartbroken as Michael was, I would have looked at him and said, well, you know, Michael, boys will be boys. What would you think of me as a father? I mean, that, that's what it boils down to. Because when we have that attitude as Christians towards wrongful actions towards people of color, and we excuse it as societal norm, then we are complicit in those actions because we have the ability to stand. What do you mean? Should I speak out? You, you want me to say something? To yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. If some little kid's coming in and destroying your yard, you're going to say something to him. So say something to him. Say something to that adult. It's a good thing that it was Aaron that he said that to and not me. Because I wouldn't have responded with, oh, you're, no, you're right. I won't say what I would have done, but... When a white person is automatically listened to and believed before a person of color in a confrontation, that is complicity. And I, I said this as well in the first service. Um, I talked with Melvin Edwards about this, our, our, uh, one of our deacons, a man of color. And he told me this is when I had these open and honest discussions with him about race and what it was like to walk in a, the shoes of a man of color. He said, Pastor John, even me, Melvin is a, a city councilor in Springfield. I mean, he's a man of importance. He said, if it's a white man and a black man, the white man will always get the opportunity to tell his story first, and that will become the basis of truth. And I, you know what? I never experienced that, and I thought about that. And then in this situation with my sons, and once again, it's a relative situation in my family, the boys denied it, and the parents lied for the kid, and everybody believed the white family and, dis and, and called the, the brown boys liars, even when one of the two boys came back and apologized. Apologized for saying what they said. People still don't believe they said it. I'm sorry, if I tell you I did something, I'm telling you I did it. You should probably believe me. But that is complicity. When you're comfortable with the fact that your church is segregated, that is complicity. When you do not speak up and speak out and take action to help the cause of those who are oppressed, you are complicit. In the church, racial reconciliation should not be an aspirational idea. It should be a reality. In other words, as believers, as followers of Christ, as a church body, we should not aspire to racial reconciliation and racial unity. That should be our reality. There should, when we say all ground is level at the foot of the cross, that's the way we should live. 
When we say that God died, that Jesus Christ died for everybody and God loves everybody and that anyone who realizes they're a sinner and knows that and accepts the fact that Jesus died to pay the price for that sin and they pray and they ask Jesus Christ to come into their heart, anybody who does that, when we say that Jesus died for everybody, that should truly be played out in the way we minister and live and have a church. Everybody should be welcome. It should not be an aspirational idea. It should be the norm. Micah 6.8. Bible says, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. It's not that hard. It doesn't take deep theological discourse to understand how we should treat each other when it comes to church. Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with everybody, with your God, and let that flow from your life to everybody you come in contact with. We should be people of justice. We should be people of love. We should be people of morality. And more importantly, we should be people of equality. I can't help it if people don't choose to come to this church, but it shouldn't be because they don't feel welcome because of their skin color. That brings us to what we're going to talk about today. Because Jesus taught a parable about race in the church. And we find it in our text in Luke chapter 10. Now, I, I believe very well-meaning. I've preached on this. I've taught lessons on this before to teenagers. <clears throat> and I believe that every, every message that's brought from it is very good. But I believe that most messages and most lessons have missed the point of what Jesus was really trying to bring out here. And I believe that once you look at it from this perspective, you, it will jump off the page at you. Because what Jesus chose to do in telling the parable of the Good Samaritan is, is just a loud message to us that speaks of racial division and, and racial hatred and animosity. And that's not a stretch to try to make it fit the narrative here. You'll see that it really is true. So let's go ahead and read Luke chapter 10, beginning of verse 25. Then an expert in the law stood up to test him, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He asked him. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, he told him. Do this and you will live. But this guy wasn't satisfied. He thought Jesus was pacifying him. He thought Jesus was pushing him off. And he wanted to catch, his main, his main point was to catch Jesus in a lie and to twist him in his doctrine. So he continued and he said, but wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Is it just the, the dude that lives next door and his family? <clears throat> you say, I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself. Well, who's my neighbor? Jesus gave him a lesson he wasn't looking for. Verse 30, Jesus took up the question and said, a man, and this would be a Jewish man, going from Jerusalem to Jericho. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened by, happened to be going down the road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite... When he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan on his journey 
came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him, and he bandaged his his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, Jesus took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The one who showed mercy to him, he said. Then Jesus told him, go and do the same. There's a few important facts that I want to notice about this parable. A few things I want to bring out before we get into the heart of the matter. The first one is this. It's a a pretty rough story, isn't it? I mean, this guy is just going down to conduct business. He's going from Jerusalem to Jericho. He's just on the road to conduct his business. And some thieves come out of the, uh, of the, from the side of the road, and they attack him, and they beat him up, and they beat him so badly they leave him half dead is what Jesus says. The guy was half dead. This isn't an exaggeration. These are the words of Jesus. They steal all his money. They steal his animal. They steal all his possessions, and they leave him there. But notice in Jesus' narrative in the story that he didn't address the sinfulness of the robbers who stole the man's money and beat him to death. I mean, doesn't that just jump out at you? Don't you think Jesus would say, hey, guys, that's wrong. The way they treated this guy, that's wrong. But he didn't even address it. Why? Because that would have been a straw man argument designed to take attention away from the complicity of the priest and the Levite in their unwillingness to help the injured man. The crime wasn't the issue. In Jesus' story, the crime wasn't the issue. He wasn't trying to get, the, get this, this young man and everybody listening to understand that the, cri- that, that, uh, the crime wasn't the issue, That's not, that, that the crime was what was wrong. It's not what he was talking about. The second thing I see is that Jesus didn't address the failed morality of the religious leaders, which would have been another distraction to the point he was trying to make. Was it, hor- was it a horrible indiscretion for a priest? Now, a priest is one who served in the temple. He's the one that received sacrifices, and he's the one that, that uh, committed those sacrifices, and he led the worship times. Je- the, the priest was the one that was the, the emissary of God to the people in the temple. This guy is supposed to be the moral, super- morally superior individual and the moral authority in the religious faith. Was it a horrible thing for the priest And the Levite, a Levite was one who took care of the temple. They served as guards. They were the ones that led worse. They played the worship music. They played the instruments. That's what a Levite was. They were ones that opened the door for people as they entered. They were servants in the temple. So priests and Levites... To act this way, was it a horrible indiscretion for them to ignore this man, someone in such dire need? Absolutely. These guys didn't even go and check for a pulse, for crying out loud. I've read, uh, as I was studying this and reading about it, some some theologians and pastors say, well, because they were not supposed to come near a corpse, that it could have been that they were just trying to uh, not go to... No, 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 don't excuse it. That was a horrible indiscretion for them to ignore someone in such great need. Yet there was a 
There was a bigger issue that Jesus wanted to, wanted to bring out. Were they morally bankrupt for ignoring someone in desperate need for help? Absolutely. Absolutely. They were complicit in the situation of this man because they, would, they could have helped and didn't lift a finger. In fact, they walked to the other side of the street. But I'm pointing that out. Jesus didn't. Jesus didn't talk about the, the robbery and the crime. Jesus didn't talk about the complicity of the religious men, the men, supposedly men of God, and their failure to help an individual. Remember, Jesus said, live justly, love mercy, and walk humbly. I think helping a person who's half dead, <laughs> bleeding in the street, I mean, they didn't even say, hey, bud, I'm going to go get a doctor. I'm going to send back help. I can't take care of you, but I'm going to go get help. They didn't even do that. They simply went to the other side of the street and went on their way. They were complicit in this man's injuries. The third fact I see is this. Jesus chose a Samaritan to be the hero of this story. This was provocative for Jesus to do because it intentionally made this story about race and racial hatred. Intentionally. Jesus chose to make this parable and make the hero of the story a Samaritan helping out a Jew to point out the racial uh, hatred and animosity that existed between the two. In other words, it would have been more likely for the Samaritan to walk on the other side of the street of a Jew that was half dead than for two religious leaders of the Jewish faith. So Jesus intentionally made this story about race and racial hatred. A little bit of history about why that is true, why he chose Samaritans and Jews. Israel, shortly after the first couple kings of Israel, Israel was divided into two kingdoms, the northern and the southern, Israel and Judah. The northern was conquered by Assyria in 722 B.C. And the Assyrians took away many of the Jews captive and they brought in some of their own people to take over the land and repopulate the land and inhabit the land. And those people brought with them their own religion and their own faiths. And they began to, uh, the, the Jews began to assimilate to their society and to their culture rather than having the, those who came into their culture assimilate to that culture. So they became, uh, it, it became an Assyrian race rather than a Jewish race. And in fact, the, the capital of that, that part, the, the, uh, the northern kingdom that, As that Assyria took over, they made their capital city Samaria, and that's where, we get, that's where they got the name Samaritans. They, they married within the races, and they brought their own gods to worship, and they took away the worship of the living God from the northern kingdom. Meanwhile, the southern kingdom... The kingdom of Judah was overthrown by Babylon in 600 B.C. The people were taken away into captivity. Seventy years later, about 43,000 Jewish people were allowed to go back into the southern kingdom and rebuild the southern kingdom and repopulate and re-inhabit the southern kingdom. Now, here's where things, here's where the story starts to get a little murky. The pure-blood Jews despised the intermarriage and the idol worship of their northern 
brothers. They called it idol worship. Uh, they, they despised their idol worship. They called them dogs or half-breeds. In our modern, in, not modern, not necessarily modern because you don't hear it anymore, but back in the, the uh, you know, probably from the 1900s up to through the 60s, <laughs> racists would call intermarriage, interracial marriage, the mongrelization of the races. You ever heard that term? Mongrelization of the races? When a, a, a white person and a black person marry? It's a mongrel, they call that the mongrelization of the races. That's exactly what the, Jew, what the pure blood Jews of the southern kingdom considered the Samaritans of the northern kingdom. They called them half-bloods and dogs because they didn't stay to the pure line of the Jewish race. <clears throat> the animosity stayed and it built. For 550 years, it grew. It was marked by severe hatred, by bitterness and division, so much so that the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. In fact, many times, many business people would go around Samaria so as not to go through the land of the Samaritans. That's how deeply the hatred ran. It persisted even after the Romans conquered the land. Now, usually, if, if conquered people, even if, they have, if, even if they have arguments, if they're conquered by a common foe, they will unite to defeat that foe, but not the Jews and the Samaritans. Even though the Romans came in and conquered their lands, the Jews and the Samaritans kept up their blood feud, and they continued to hate each other. And it boiled over, and just one instance of the animosity and the hatred between these two groups boiled over in A.D. 51. If you're, if you're adding years, that's about 800 years from the time that the northern kingdom was taken captive by the Assyrians. In A.D. 51, people from the Samaritan village of Janae murdered one or more. The sources contradict on how many were murdered, but they murdered at least one, probably more, Jewish pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem for the Passover. The Jews approached their Roman rulers for justice, but the Romans ignored them, which is what the Romans normally did. They usually gave it back to the local communities to handle. An unruly mob from Jerusalem of Jews went down to the village of Janae, the Samaritan village of Janae, massacred all the inhabitants, and burned the village to the ground. At this point, the Romans intervened. They arrested and executed several of the Jews involved. 800 years later. 800 years. And it built, and it built, and it built. And they still had hatred towards those who were not like them. So you see, the fact that Jesus chose a Samaritan to be the hero of a story to a group of Jews about helping a Jew and, could, and, and intentionally ignored and made the villains of the story to religious leaders of the Jews is provocative, to say the least. It's made more provocative because it highlights the racial division and hatred that had existed for almost 800 years. I wonder today if Jesus told this parable in modern society, if he would choose the American society and the American church, the American evangelical church, 
as priests and Levites. And make this statement, as American Christians, we've been shaped more by our culture than by Christ when it comes to race. As Christians in America, in the American church, we've been shaped more by our culture than we have been by Christ when it comes to race. And that is why we're divided. And this needs to change. The parable of the, the, parable of the Good Samaritan shouts out to us today with its timeless and timely message of love, unity, and compassion that knows no bounds at all, period. It cries out to us, to examine ourselves and our attitude towards those of different races than ours. It challenges us to ask ourselves hard questions about how we see color and who we blame for our feelings. It begs us to be better than we are. It pleads with us to stand up and make a difference for the unity of the church and the souls of the lost. We cannot avoid or turn our ears away from the teaching of this lesson. We cannot close our eyes to its truth because if we do, we will simply stay the same way we are and continue to be divided and less than effective, less effective, the, the, we'll be less than effective the way Jesus wants us to be. If we continue to see people of color in our community, it would be African Americans and Puerto Ricans and other people of Caribbean descent who live in our area. Because let's be honest, I mean, if we're going to be honest, let's, let's just be honest about it. The racial division in the Springfield metro area is be between white folks and African American, Puerto Rican, and other people of, of uh, Caribbean descent. That's what it is. That's where it is. That's the racial division that we have. If we continue to see people of color as less than us, as unwelcome or less than wanted in our church, our town, or our culture, if we continue to be just fine with the way things are and do not see that attitude as being complicit in racism in the church, then we will continue to struggle to make progress forward in this church, in this community, and in the kingdom of God. And we will continually be sinfully divided by race and cause sorrow for the heart of God. I asked this very pointed question in the first service, and I'll ask it again today in, this, in the 1030 service. New lifers, and this is for new lifers. Um, you, you're welcome to answer the question if you want, if you're not a, a new lifer, if you're watching on Facebook. Look around the church and see how many people are here in new life directly because of you. Most churches, the flow of most churches, if you, it's, not, it's, not it's not just uh, typical for new life, it's typical for churches. The flow of most churches is that churches always lose people. People always fall away. You can ask anybody who's been in ministry. People always walk away. People fall away. They get out of the habit of church. Right now we're seeing a mass exodus of people getting out of the habit of churches. But the reason most people don't see that decline is because most people, most churches, actively have people inviting new people to come to the church. And the amount of new people that come in out outweighs the amount of people leaving the church so the church continues to grow. And I'll just ask this question, New Lifers, if you don't see that happening, why don't you see that happening? What are you doing? See, I can, and I'll, I'll say this, I'll, uh, this is not arrogant, this is just honesty. I can look around New Life Church and I can see dozens of people that are here because of me, because of my assistant pastor, my son, and because of my wife. I can even see people around because of my two young boys, my two youngest sons. But I wonder if you can say the same. 
And I wonder if some of that is because we are not willing to reach out to those of a different race and invite them to church. Other people, period, but are we ignoring a majority of the population? You see, it's easy to blame others. It's easy to, let's just be honest, it's easy to blame the pastor. It's easy to blame the messenger. But it's not that easy to take responsibility for yourself. And that's what Martin Luther King was talking about when he says, it's difficult to find somebody who's willing to think deeply on the matter. Listen, man, you can blame me for everything. I got broad shoulders, and I'll, I'll, I'll carry that. I don't, I know, I, I came to the truth a long time ago. I talked to my sister Sue about this. I know truth. I know what's true. So, so if I know what's true, I don't really care if you're lying about me. And I know people don't like to hear me say I don't care, but I don't care. Listen, if you're going to lie about me, that's on you, not on me. That's not a burden for me to carry, okay? So if you want to blame me for your inaction, that's up to you, not me. I know the truth. But what you need to do is stop finding someone to blame and actually take responsibility for your thoughts and your actions and your inaction and your rebellious attitude towards other people of God and change. What the Samaritan man displayed in this story was love. Love that went beyond the legal matter for Jesus. Love that went beyond the lack of compassion, grace, and care by his own people. It was love that looked beyond hatred and generations of division because of race and reached down to help another human being in need. It was love that went beyond respect. Samaritan love is the pure love of Jesus. Samaritan love is unexpected, it is difficult, and it is selfless. It goes beyond polite deeds and courtesies. It rises above class and racial tension. Samaritan love is love from the core of our faith, love motivated by our love for Jesus and his love and grace and commands to love to us. Samaritan love doesn't care what others think. Hey man, that Samaritan, he didn't care what other Samaritans thought. He didn't even care what the other Jew, what the Jews in the area thought. When he went to the inn, that inn was more than likely owned by a Jewish man. He didn't care what anybody thought of him. He did what was right to do for someone in need. He didn't care whether he'd lose friends because of his actions. Samaritan love does what it does because it's right to do in the eyes of God Almighty. By not acting to help this man who was in great need of help, these two religious men were complicit in his trouble. They had the capacity, the time, and the ability to help, but they didn't. They didn't, they didn't lift a finger to help. They didn't offer to go get a doctor. They didn't offer a drink of water. In fact, they walked on the other side of the street to avoid him and to avoid responsibility. This is where we find ourselves when we fail to act in situations that we know we have the capacity and ability to help. When we don't speak up and speak out against racial injustice, especially in the church, we are complicit in that injustice because we allow it to go on. Are you telling me that I should speak up to somebody who says something wrong? Absolutely. Absolutely. Call them on it. Gentlemen, hey, listen, man. I am of the belief 
Now hold on to your socks, okay? I'm serious, because this, this is gonna rattle some cages and shake some trees, all right? I'm just, I'm just preparing you. I am of the firm belief that Tom Brady is not the greatest quarterback of all time. Oh, look, oh no, oh no, open up the back door because I gotta run out now, right? For my money, my dad and I have had this conversation because my dad's a diehard Patriots fan. Been a Patriots fan, I've been trying to get him out of his sinful lifestyle for many years of being a Patriots fan, but I just won't confess that sin and get it right with God. But my dad, my dad asked me one question one day. He says, why don't you think Tom Brady is the best quarterback of all time? I said, Dad, because you and I grew up, and, and David, my older brother, who is not the smartest guy in the world, but he is in some things. I'm just kidding, David, I love you. Um, David, my dad, the three of us would watch football together, and I grew up watching Johnny Unitas play. And for my money, I'm serious, for my money, Johnny Unitas is the greatest quarterback ever to play the game of football. Watch. That was back when you, I mean, you had to, you, quarterbacks could get hit. They could get hit. They had to play the game. They didn't, it wasn't flag football for the quarterback back then. And that's what, and, and Johnny Unitas has many championships. I think he's got four championships. So he, he, for my money, see, see, we will willingly take that on that conversation, right? Because that one doesn't make us feel uncomfortable. I think the best left-handed pitcher of all time is, is uh, Sandy Koufax. Absolutely, no questions asked. But my brother David might tell you it's Steve Carlton. We'll take on those conversations because they're, e they're easy and there's really no consequence to it, right? But why won't we, and you know what, if I, I'm, now I, I don't go to bars, but I'm sure if I went into a, I'll go to Buffalo Wild Wings, how's that? Buffalo Wild Wings, that's a good restaurant. I'll, if I go to Buffalo Wild Wings and stand up on one of those tables and get everybody's attention and say, Tom Brady is not the GOAT, I'm gonna have wings coming my way. Now that might be a way to get a free meal, but it's also not the way to get out alive. <clears throat> why is it that we can take on those questions with honesty but not questions of race you see that's where the rubber meets the road and there's a whole big uh, quite a bigger problem with race in this country than there is with the NFL When we fail to call out sinful racism in our society and our church, we're complicit in that racism. <laughs> when we knowingly exclude people of color from our faith circles, we are complicit in that racism. And let's be clear, these are our brothers and sisters in Christ that we're talking about. They're our brothers and sisters in Christ. These are people with whom we'll spend eternity that we don't care about. These are people that we're commanded to work and minister with that we are intentionally avoiding. Imagine what would happen if all evangelical churches in the Springfield metro area got together and worked together beyond racial lines. That's my, that's my heart right now, to tear down that wall so that we will be a church that reaches out and reaches others and works with churches that are not necessarily churches, not necessarily traditionally white churches.
Not so that we can have brownie points or not so that I can be seen as, uh, this, as whatever you think I might want to be seen as, but because it's the right thing to do and there are people lost and dying and on their way to hell in the Springfield metro area. And I think that if we come together as a church, we can do a, great, a better job of reaching them than we are divided. In light of those facts, I want to make five quick applications about Samaritan love to our, to our current situation. The first one is this, Samaritan love will go beyond all racial, ethnic, economic, or social boundaries. First John 3:17 says, if anyone has this world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? I think it's important that the Holy Spirit uh, inspired John to write their fellow believer. It didn't just say anybody out there. It said if you see a fellow believer who is in need of, and I, I would submit to you that respect as a human being of equal value is something we all need. And I think that's some of this world's goods. We value our good name, don't we? We value our reputation in the community, especially as followers of Christ. And when we have the ability to speak up and speak out and vouch for and show that those of color are the same as us and equal as us and have the same abilities and God-given talents and love that we do as white people, then we are, and by saying that, we would elevate their status and we would bring them to a place of equality. And in turn, we would be able to work with them and we don't do it, John says, how can you say the love of God lives with inside you? The second thing is this, Samaritan love should change our worldview on race as believers in Jesus. It is not, we are not designed to be separate but equal. We are designed to be one. When people say, I'm colorblind, I don't see color, I, think that, I don't think that's helpful. Here's why. Jesus created color. God, Jesus is the creator of all things, and he created color. He created skin with different pigments. It was, and, and remember, when he, when, he, when he finished with creation, he said, it is good. He was pleased with it. So that means he was pleased with the pigmentation of skin and the different colors, the melanin that, that colors our skin. How can we, the creator, the created, mock the creator for what he made? James 2, 14 through 17 says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. In other words, if you are not acting on what you know to be true from the Word of God, and you are intentionally ignoring matters that need your attention then your faith is dead, according to the word of God. And the third thing is this, Samaritan love should spur us to action when people of color need our help, support, or agreement. Desiderius Erasmus said, he who allows oppression shares the crime. And once again, Micah 6.8, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Why is it? that when, when we see a person of color, we automatically assume 
things about them. When we see, when we see uh, an interaction between uh, the police or authority and a person of color, we automatically assume, even when, listen, even when the facts bear out, I mean, I'll, 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 I'll even let the things go where, where somebody was running from the cops, but when, when the story bears out that it was just a law-abiding lawyer who was just driving home and he gets shot by the police, why is it we assume he must have been doing something wrong? Let me ask you a question. If that was me, <laughs> would you assume the same thing? Or would you be willing to sit down and listen to, to what the police did wrong? I'm not a police basher, but I'm telling you, when these things happen time and time and time again, we have to ask honest questions about what's going on. And as Christians, we should seek the truth, not justify what we want to be true. Number four, Samaritan love is truth, and it should cause us to speak out against oppression and injustice for the sake of truth. Jeremiah 20, verse 9, Jeremiah, the message of God was hard for him, and it was, it was difficult for him to speak, and it caused him sorrow. But he said, even if I say I won't mention him or speak any longer in his name, but his message becomes a, burning, a fire burning in my heart, shut up in my bones. I become tired of holding it in, and I cannot prevail. Jeremiah said, the word of God is like a burning coal in my body, in my chest, and I can't hold it in. I have to speak the truth. What if we as Christians would speak the truth about these things? I guarantee you things would change. And lastly, Samaritan love puts the responsibility on our shoulders to bring about true unity in the church among the races. Ephesians 2, verses 14 through 16 say, For he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. The two groups there he's talking about are Jews and Gentiles, Jews and Samaritans, if you will. He's talking about racial division. The Jews were one race and the Gentiles are another a whole nother group. And he said his goal was to bring those two groups together to tear down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. One new, which I said, man, these, series, these sermons are about unity. That's what he wants. He wants one created from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. And who did he charge with the ministry of reconciliation? 2 Corinthians 5, verses 19 and 20. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not consent, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. We have been given the ministry of reconciliation. It is on us, the responsibility of reconciliation of the world to God and of the church to each other is on us. God expects us to care. He expects us to act. He expects us to defend, and he expects us to love all people of any race. Not so that you'll be woke. 
please. That's the furthest, that's the furthest thing from my mind. In fact, do you want me to be real? I've been honest all this time. Why don't I just be honest again, Louisa, right? I think the term woke, the term woke annoys me. It really does. I'm not woke. I don't want to be woke. I want to see truth. Okay? I want to see truth. And I'll, I'll call truth, truth, whether it's, whether it's something I agree with and like or not. So let's stop the little, little catchphrases and let's stop chasing straw man arguments that aren't what the point is about. The point is this. We are divided in church along racial lines. And that needs to change if we're going to build the kingdom of God. There is no excuse for not standing up and speaking out. There is no excuse for complicity unless that is what you want to be. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Father, thank you for, so much for the opportunity to be in your house for both services today. Thank you for those who were able to make it out. Lord, I know many people weren't able to make it because of the heat and for other situations, but I'm so thankful that we had uh, the crowds that we had at both services. Lord, I thank you for those who watched us on Facebook Live and will watch us. And God, I know these are hard topics to talk about, and they're hard topics to hear about. But Father, it's so necessary. If we're going to bridge the gap, and if we are going to be unified here on earth the way we're going to be unified in heaven, we've got to start acting like we love each other. And we've got to get beyond these racial divisions and differences. We have to start respecting each other as human beings. God, would you work on our hearts, even the hardest of hearts that heard this message, would you soften them to your truth? Not my truth, not my opinion. God, I tried to keep my opinion out of it. But God, would you just pierce people's hearts with your truth? May we go forward as better people serving you and loving you and reaching out to others in need. Bless us, bless those who watch. God, would you bring unity in your church, unity in this country? Would you help us to stop looking for reasons to, to fight and start, fight, start finding a cause to stand up with together and for. It's in your name we pray. Amen.